Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, listeners. My name is Leah Lepkin, and I'm a Master of Environmental Management candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I'm here today with Dr. Matthias Riese, Professor of Philosophy and Public Policy at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Working primarily in social and political philosophy and in ethics, Dr. Riese's most recent paper is entitled The Human Right to Water and Common Ownership of the Earth. His books on global justice and global political philosophy were both published in 2012. Dr. Riese, I am pleased to have you in the studio today and ask you a few questions about your work. Glad to be here. To start off with, could you give our listeners an overview of this concept of common ownership of the earth and some of the central themes of your paper? Yes. Um, so the idea that uh, humanity would have um, collective ownership of the earth uh, sounds rather strange to us these days. So philosophers, uh, even philosophers, are not discussing this terribly much in the present time. But just to motivate that a little bit, it actually this thought was the pivotal idea of the political philosophy uh, of the 17th century. And uh, um, the reason for that was that, for better or worse, the 17th century was the time uh, when European expansionism really came into its own. And so, you know, people were traveling all over the globe and were occupying uh, locations and they were wondering what the conditions were under which the Spanish could uh, take certain regions rather than the Portuguese. And they were wondering about whether the the oceans themselves could be appropriated. Right? These were big questions uh, at the time. Um, so they arose in the context of uh, emerging colonialism. Um, and it was this emerging colonialism that for the first time brought questions about the earth as a whole on people's radar, right? So the, uh, uh, the earth as such became interesting for uh, reflection from a political theory standpoint. Now, um, back then, the angle on this for these European um, colonizers was the Bible, right? So there's this passage in the Old Testament that says that the earth was given to human beings in common. And this passage in the book of Genesis basically was what all of this was going back to and all the great thinkers of the 17th century from Hugo Grotius at the beginning to John Locke at the end, uh, they all had views on what this meant and what it involved. And, and So um, I would like to revitalize this, and I've done a fair amount of work trying to revitalize this, but of course nowadays we have to do it in a secular way. We have to think about it very differently, but the motivation... Uh, of thinking about the uh, earth as collectively owned uh, is uh, is actually much more important and current these days than it ever was if for no other reason than because of climate change. So just thinking about us in relation to the earth is, uh, is, is, uh, is very important. So um, what's the connection to water? So, um, well, so uh, I've done a lot of work with this idea uh, of humanity's collective ownership. And one kind of work uh, I have done is I have uh, um, I've, um, proposed an approach to human rights that also integrates this approach uh, in terms of collective ownership. And so the, the idea there is that uh, we do have these, in, as individuals, we have these natural ownership rights to the resources and spaces of the earth. 
but of course, the way we live is we live in very complex political economic structures. We live in something called the global political economic order. And so the question is, how can how can these two things be reconciled, right? How can this fact that we have these natural ownership rights, that we all have these natural ownership rights, be reconciled with the fact that there is this that there is this uh, global order? And my response to that is to say, well, at, at the level of the global order as such, certain guarantees need to be given to individuals that their abilities to make use of resources and spaces are either respected or uh, or if, as is more common in the complex kind of societies and technology-driven kind of societies in which we live, uh, are substituted with something else. So instead of having rights of working on land and resources, uh, you know, we, we must be given certain guarantees that we can make a living uh, in uh, some other ways. Right? And it's really, this is the train of thought from which then ultimately I also, uh, one, one of these rights that need to be provided is that we have um, this access to water that we can that we can get water because this is part of what was involved in this original ownership arrangement, and political and economic structures must not undermine this right to water. So that's the that's roughly the story of how I connect water and collective ownership of the earth. It's fascinating uh, the history of that uh, development in your paper. Uh, to kind of bring it down to a specific level, mm -hmm. there's reference to the Cochabamba Declaration and the Dublin Statement as contrasting examples of the conception of rights to water. Can you tell us about those examples and how they relate to your philosophy? Yeah, uh, there is a, a mainstream approach actually to water uh, among political philosophers across history. And it actually goes back to Cicero, right? So Cicero uh, in ancient Rome wrote this, uh, these tremendously important writings that resonated through the ages. And uh, one of these passages that resonated through the ages was one where Cicero said, look, um, there are certain things that are in ample supply and, you know, they're useful to the person who gets them and no trouble for the giver. So they should be readily provided. And the th his three examples are water, fire, and good advice, right? Mm -hmm. You should always be willingly giving. <laughs> But, but water is one of them, and so many writers uh, subsequently have echoed this theme and treated water as something that was just an ample supply and that wasn't much to worry about, right? And, of course, uh, you know, for much of history, um, that may have been the way it was, but uh, today it certainly isn't anymore. And so these two documents that you are referring to, um, each in their own way draw attention to that and say, no, water, there is something special about water, and it needs, uh, we need to draw attention to the significance of water, but they do this in very different ways. So the uh, Cochabamba Declaration is named after a uh, place in Bolivia where there were massive protests against uh, um, international corporations coming in and basically uh, appropriating all the water from the government and selling it uh, you know, for, for profit in, in, in ways that was just unaffordable for the residents. So there was a lot of activism that evolved around that and people said look water is a public good it is important and it's because of its importance that it must be protected as a public good um, the dublin declaration is uh, a very different uh, effort of highlighting the significance of water this is basically uh, a document uh, manufactured by governments who you know that say look uh, yes water is important um, but what we mean by that is water is a commodity water needs to be priced water needs to be 
on markets. You know? So these are two diff very different ways of, of revising this traditional attitude that water is just plentiful and doesn't need to be, we don't need to worry about it uh, much. In your paper, you address several ob objections to your approach. Can you describe one or two of the major objections in your response to them? Yeah, so um, much of, much of uh, many of the objections that are coming up are actually coming to this general framework that I'm using here. So um, I have this general view, general theory about humanity having this collective ownership relationship with the earth. Uh, and then from there I get to water. So one thing that people say is, well, isn't it enough that we all need water, right? Why would you have to go through all this collective ownership? And, and the answer to that is that uh, it's actually not enough to say that we all need water. Of course, uh, basic human needs um, generate some kind of moral claim. So um, a morally appropriate reaction to basic needs is to be somehow responsive to them. But one thing that's notoriously difficult about needs is to sort out exactly how they generate and what kind of obligations they generate in other people, right? So how far does this go? What exactly must I do? And and this is where um, focusing on this idea of collective ownership helps because what I'm what I can do in this way as I think about uh, humanity having this collective ownership claim is I can acknowledge the significance of human needs. So we are talking about resources and spaces that we all need for for survival and for all of our being. But I also want to emphasize that we are talking about materials, uh, spaces that in principle are just there. So we didn't create them, right? We did not make the earth. We, uh, you know, we were, uh, you know, we kind of grew up here uh, at, at some point, right? Our species emerged at some point. But we are talking about resources and spaces that are independently given, right? And as we are talking about how to divide up these resources, what kind of access to grant to these resources, that's something very important to, uh, to realize, that, um, that there's limits to individual appropriation to this, there's limits to how much of this I can take out for myself to the exclusion of other people because we all do need it and none of us has done anything to create it, right? So, so that is why I, I don't just want to talk about human needs, but I also want to emphasize uh, the, the, this particular feature of, uh, of, of spaces and resources that they, that they are not created uh, by us. Um, now, one other objection that comes to uh, collective ownership is to the idea of ownership. Why do I want to think about ownership and doesn't this have all sorts of chauvinistic implications? And, and the truth is, of course, in the, in the 17th century, uh, uh, you know, going back to the biblical story, this had substantive uh, chauvinist implications because many people read the Bible in this way that the rest of creation is just given to us for our benefit and we can use it up as mm -hmm. we see fit. And, and of course, that, is, that, has been, uh, that has led to all sorts of mischief. And many people think, and I think quite rightly, this lies at the, at the core of our ecological crisis. But, but in my secular revitalization of this project, the point of this is actually slightly different. Namely, the point is to the extent that human beings have claims to the earth. right? So to the extent that we do, any two of us across generations, across regions, 
have the same claims. So any kind of sensible view on environmental values, on, uh, on animals, can just be added to this. Right? So it's really, you know, the, the, the core idea is among two human beings, between two human beings, none has a bigger claim, even if they live in the future than, than, than we have today. So, so this is something that's very important to me to emphasize that there is no issue here with environmental ethics in a way. This would be, would be very unfortunate if it were perceived like that, because the whole point of this is in a way to, to, uh, to, to go against exploitation by some people to the exclusion of everybody else and also to the exclusion of the natural world. Mm-hmm. And given the fact that some people and countries have more access to natural resources than others, how can we reconcile resource inequality with this common ownership principle? Well, so this is uh, this is the sense in which this is a normative theory, right? So this is not a descriptive theory. This is not trying to assess what the world is like, uh, but this really is about uh, developing views about what the uh, what the world should be like. Uh, so. Uh, I just presented this paper at a workshop at Yale Law School and, you know, somebody in the audience was asking me, doesn't this go substantially against the principle of state sovereignty, right? This idea of humanity having this kind of collective claim on spaces and stuff. And um, and the answer to that is, yes, it does. And it's meant to it's meant to do that. Right. It's meant to be a progressive doctrine in this way and to say, look, uh, uh, something goes wrong if countries just think, we are here, we got here first, we have the right to control borders, this is ours, we don't care about anything uh, else, right? So uh, sovereignty is appropriate, it can be substantiated only to the extent that it is combined with the willingness to shoulder a country's share of global problem solving. And um, so, and to the extent that there is unequal distribution of resources, disproportionate distribution of resources, my theory is supposed to be opening up some avenues um, for exploring how to do this better. Mm. So my next question uh, would be about this, uh, the implications that your principle have on uh, topics like immigration. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, state sovereignty. So specifically immigration, uh, this is actually one area where this approach has uh, pretty immediate uh, implications. Um, also um, controversial ones, so not, not everybody likes this, but one, one immediate uh, consequence of thinking about humanity as a whole having this relationship with the earth is that immigration policy is not a discretionary measure for any given state, right? So if you look at um, the reality of immigration debates, what you normally find is uh, people wondering what's best for us, what's best for the United States, what's best for Canada, what's best for the UK. Uh, And we are not thinking, you know, what kind of contribution should we be making to the to global population movements, right? We are not asking what do we owe to would-be immigrants. And uh, what you're getting out of this approach is that uh, immigration must be thought of also as a way of proportionately using the earth, right? So now this is a bit of a difficult idea to spell out in detail exactly proport- what kind of proportionality is meant here. But the the general idea here is uh, immigration involves um, immigration is also about providing a home, providing a location for a proportionate number 
uh, of um, of human beings, right? And I published a number of pieces on this. And you know, as a philosopher, you are normally not that much in uh, in, uh, in in the public spotlight. But the the one uh, the one kind of paper that I have gotten a fair amount of hate mail on is actually my <laughs> views on immigration because it goes against what what much mainstream immigration thinking and many mainstream perceptions mm -hmm. on immigration hold. Namely, this is just for us to decide, and that's actually, on my view, just really not the case. It's a it's a matter for um, uh, global making global arrangements, and immigration policy needs to be justified to humanity as a whole. Just as a follow up to that, mm. I mean, do you think there are immigration policies that exist now that are more superior in light of this principle or, or movements that are happening to move more towards this conception? I think generally uh, wealthy countries these days uh, have the view that immigration is just for them to decide, right? There's, they're very protectionist uh, about this. Uh, and uh, on my view, at least the United States, Raja, you know, the, the kind of size that it is, uh, that it has, uh, has an obligation to actually admit more people at the stage. And also, ha I think, has a strong obligation to uh, to uh, make efforts to legalize illegal immigrants here. Because at this stage, actually, I think the United States is not morally permitted to actually bar people from coming in because it is not currently doing its share in providing a home for a proportionate number of people. So so those who are already here, and I hope this is actually coming out of um, President Obama's uh, current efforts at immigration reform that are now widely discussed or widely anticipated in the media, uh, that they go towards this and also legalizing immigrant illegal immigrants. Mm. And uh, similarly leading off that question, what do you think are the implications of this approach on practitioners in the fields of human rights and in water? Well, so I started working on this. I'm, I'm a political philosopher by, by background, right? So I started working on this topic because uh, I happened to be supervising a group of researchers at the Car Center for Human Rights Policy, where I'm based um, uh, for a while. And these were mostly lawyers and engineers. And it was mostly in virtue of my particular role in that center that I ended up supervising this work. And and so they they were occasionally so they were mostly concerned with with law and you know the engineering bits, but they had these questions about how we would actually think about this philosophically, right? Where would a where would a human right to water come from? You know how substantiated is this really? Not legally, but philosophically as part of thinking about global justice. And so that's how I got into this. And you know, which means if you from a concrete practitioner standpoint, how would you get to this? Well. Uh, it will not be terribly useful to you in kind of day-to-day -day, um, applications, but you know, every once in a while, you get into a conversation, you know, maybe with yourself, with other practitioners, and you keep thinking, you know, why? How can we defend this? Right? Why would there be a human right like this? Why does this, you know, why is this uh, so important that it needs to be a human right? And and that's the kind of conversation that then leads you into political philosophy as you kind of go deeper and deeper, and that's where people like me live then, and you know, they're waiting for 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 you to come and have this conversation with us about you know how we can actually uh, argue for that. Yeah. So as a practitioner, you'd get there by engaging into this sort of conversation, thinking about the background to what you're doing. Um, and it's not the kind of conversation you'd have very often, but every once in a while, I guess, people do think along such lines. Mm -hmm. You can imagine important conversations in sh terms of making sure you feel like you're heading in the right direction in terms of your work. 
Uh, what are some of the trends in social and political philosophy about water and ownership of the earth? I, I can think of recently we've been hearing about the rights of nature movement as well that's happening. So maybe that's an example. Be interested in hearing your thoughts. Well, so generally, um, like I said, there is really not terribly much work that's being done on this uh, on, on on this project of uh, um, collective ownership of the earth. And in fact, uh, it's a bigger issue, right? That um, reflecting on our relationship with the earth is actually something that political philosophers don't do uh, terribly much of. So. In a way, I'm I'm trying to make this more of a trend. So there's you know there's some other there's some other people in this literature, and so there is in fact a literature, and people have different views on exactly what collective ownership of the earth would amount to. So you know there is a, there is more than just my book that you could read on that, but it's not like there is a, there's major uh, trends at the moment. So in a way, what I'm hoping for is that. You know, people who encounter this work and you know and find the thought intriguing that we are thinking more about our relationship with the earth might also engage with this, so that then you know maybe five years from now when the question arises again, what are the trends that there would actually be trends? Right? <laughs> but at this moment, I think this is this is very much kind of pioneering uh, territory. Well, thank you for pioneering that. <laughs> You're most welcome. <laughs> uh, so you explore some. I would say, grand and deep issues in your research and writing. I would like to ask you uh, about yourself, the person holding the pen doing this writing. Can you tell us about your personal journey and how you came to be where you are now? Well, so I, um, as you can probably tell from uh, my accent, I uh, spent my uh, childhood and, and youth in Germany. And uh, as I was growing up there, I was actually... Uh, very much politically engaged. So I was uh, both kind of a youthful uh, participant in political campaigns, but at the same time, I was also getting more and more interested in the ethical and political uh, background issues that we have there. So the conversation that I just mentioned earlier that practitioners could have every once in a while about why they are doing that, why they are doing what they are doing, uh, these were um, conversations I had, and I actually realized that I liked having them and I wanted to do more of these conversations and I thought that my own uh, the, the, my own um, comparative advantage as somebody engaged with politics is, uh, might be much better uh, realized in the theoretical domain than in the activism uh, domain. So I uh, started um, you know, studying philosophy. Eventually came to this country, came to this country for graduate school, uh, ended up at my current position at Harvard University uh, 12 years ago. In between also became an American citizen. So, you know, you can do this now and I am doing it. You can be a, a dual citizen of the mm -hmm. European Union and, uh, and, and the United States. Um, and so my current uh, job is, uh, is actually um, really from, for, for my background is a dream job. I'm a political philosopher at a school of public policy. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm conducting this discourse about political philosophy uh, with students who are professional school students who themselves do not want to be philosophers, but who uh, at least, you know, uh, as far as the viewpoint of the school is concerned, everybody every once in a while should slow down and think a little bit about the ethical, um, moral, you know, uh, political, philosophical 
um, assumptions underlying this, and so we are inviting them to 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 join uh, this this kind of kind of conversation. And so I um, I take a lot of uh, get a lot of joy from engaging future policymakers uh, on these questions and. Um, then half of my teaching at the same time, almost half of my teaching is actually also uh, in Harvard College. So I'm teaching, um, I'm teaching uh, undergraduates, uh, and there in a way it's the same. It's the same mission, just to make sure to make a small contribution that uh, people who may well go far in life are not are not losing sight of these very important issues that we have to deal with, and you know the moral challenges that. Are coming our way because uh, you know the world is at a precarious moment. It could go uh, in all sorts of directions, and there is good horizons and bad horizons. And so this is uh, this is where I ended up now in this in, in this job that connects back to my uh, earlier uh, activism, but uh, uh, but uh, but the re- but the practice of it in mostly involves. Uh, teaching, um, but I'm also for that reason delighted to be able to have this conversation with you here and and uh, reach a, a different audience from what I normally reach. Absolutely, we're happy to have you. I, I would be interested to hear a, a little bit. Has your <clears throat> has your philosophy changed or evolved over the years? And and have there been any points where you've changed your mind or had a transition? Yeah, you know, in a, in a way, uh, as philosophers, uh, you know, we, I think that happens quite often. And certainly, as you are forming up your views on things, you're getting you're getting intrigued by certain questions. You're getting drawn in more and more, and you're forming tentative views on them. And you realize, I mean, these are complex questions, difficult questions. Sometimes they are new questions. Often they are questions that people that smart people have been thinking about for a long time and you know normally the first several the first many ideas views that one comes up with one uh, you know sometimes get gets quite attached to but at some point one just has to abandon them because they're really not holding up right so this this mm-hmm. is this is also why philosophy can be a very frustrating endeavor mm-hmm. right because this is it's just it's hard and it often leads to uh, leads you down um, um, dead ends. You know? So yeah, that that happens uh, qu- quite a lot. And you know, I've been I've been thinking about the these various questions that are that I treat in my book. Uh, you know, ranging from fairness and trade and human rights and immigration, climate change, and philosophical background to all of this for a long time. Uh, you know, really fifteen years and and longer. And for each of these questions. Uh, this was a long, a long, uh, long-winded road uh, with lots of frustrations of having to give up things that one thought had been accomplished. But you know, so at, at some point the views came together, and I felt comfortable enough giving it to the world. But um, you know, it's up for discussion, and who knows? Maybe uh, you know, there's going to be more revisions. Right? That's in the nature of philosophical conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, which leads me to my. Last question, which is, what are you working on now, or what are you working on next? Well, so <clears throat> these uh, the, the books that uh, that I published a couple of years ago that you mentioned at the beginning uh, are called "On Global Justice and Global Political Philosophy." So you can uh, see these are not very humble titles, right? So these are very you know these are very ambitious pieces. So uh, the Global Political Philosophy, by the way, is a is a kind of textbook version to the to the bigger one. So if anybody is interested in pursuing these topics at more depth, the this book uh, Global Political Philosophy is a uh, is a is a good beginning, and it's also an introduction. It's meant to be an introduction to the field of political philosophy. 
um, that that begins at the global level. So it's really an introduction to political philosophy in an era of globalization. But so both of these are uh, pretty um, ambitiously titled books. And, and you can imagine if this is your research, research um, domain, there's a lot of follow-up questions that are coming up. So I've put the view out there and, you know, objections have been raised. And it's also been clear to me that a lot more issues need to be uh, addressed, both about the foundational ways of thinking about justice. This is really a good way of approaching justice from you know, from the standpoint of philosophy as a field, but there are so many um, am amazing, interesting application scenarios that are out there where I think this uh, this approach can actually engage with questions that are of interest to uh, practitioners and <clears throat> uh, and people in other academic fields. And and really, this paper that we that we uh, were just talking about here today on uh, common ownership and the human right to water is actually one of those, right? So it's a follow-up topic where the challenge arose, does this approach have something to say about the human right to water? And mm -hmm. yes, I think it does. And so I spelled this out. And so I'm engaged in actually in quite a number of follow-up projects uh, like this that will eventually produce a, um, you know, a, a follow-up book to on global justice just because there's so many so many balls in the air so it's a, you know it's a, it's 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 a wonderful area to think about partly because the questions are so practically relevant in our world but um, also because they are theoretically tremendously rich and lead to a lot of follow-up questions great we look forward to reading that <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me in the studio today it's been my pleasure thank you